The ancient city-states of Greece sent their best athletes to compete usually every four years in the city of Olympia. The games were held in honor of Zeus, whose towering statue was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Before the athletes were permitted to compete, they had to stand before this imposing statue and swear an oath that they had completed ten months of strict training. The Olympiad was no place for amateurs. It was only for committed athletes wholly dedicated to their sport. The oath before Zeus was designed to weed out any athlete who proposed to make a hobby out of what had to be a way of life. Now, there's nothing wrong with being an amateur athlete. If you are an amateur runner, for instance, you might fit running in your schedule here and there as you find time. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes other priorities force you to set running aside for a period of time. There's no problem with that because you're an amateur. It's a hobby. But nobody from the ancient Greeks to the present day appreciates someone who claims to be a professional athlete and yet lives like an amateur. I wonder if you agree with me. I cannot believe on an honest reading of the New Testament that Jesus chose any of us to live the Christian life as an amateur. The Christian life is not a hobby. It's not a pastime, part-time, sideline aspect of life that we fit in here and there as we wish. Following Jesus is to be for each of us a way of life. A life orientation that defines who we are. Jesus was not trolling for Christian amateurism and Christian hobbyists when He said, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that is, whoever gives his life away, will find it. The call to become a disciple of Jesus is a call to suffer hardship. It is a call to abandon one's life to the advance of His cause. It's a call to orient our daily living to who Christ is and to His purposes. We can arrive at no other conclusion as we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to Timothy which the Apostle writes from death row in a Roman prison. I invite you to 2 Timothy as we begin at chapter 2 in our journey through this book. Writing from a Roman prison, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in something of a summary statement of the book to this point. Chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You then is in an emphatic position. And it contrasts to what we read in chapter 1, verses 15-18. through 18. In verse 15, who did we meet there? Phygelus and Hermogenes. They abandoned Paul in his suffering because they were ashamed of the Gospel. In verses 16-18, through 18, we met Onesiphorus, who was faithful to Paul and unashamed of the Gospel. 
So then as we read these words, you then, my child, it's in contrast negatively and positively to these individuals that have gone before. Paul urges Timothy on his part to be strengthened by means of the grace that is found in spiritual union with Christ Jesus. Don't be like these who are ashamed of Christ and have left Him. Be like Onesiphorus. Be like me. Be willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. You'll notice here in verse 1 that it is divine grace that is the enabling power of Christian endurance. Divine grace is the enabling power of Christian endurance. As Paul put it in 1.14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Be faithful to the Gospel, but know that the power comes from God. Now let's stop for a moment here in 2.1 and think of the linkage to the context of the book. It really goes back to verse 8, which is the theme verse in 1.1 through 2.13. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God. We'll find continual references to the power of God, the indwelling of the Spirit, the strength that is in Christ. It all comes from Him, but the call is to be willing to suffer for Christ. You'll be ashamed of Him, or you'll suffer hardship for Him. So that's the connection here. Two one, then something of a stop, a summary of one eight. But also think then in chapter two and down through verse thirteen. As we think of that, all of this section coheres around this theme of enduring hardship and suffering for Christ. So back to 2.1, this call to be not ashamed, but rather to suffer for Him, is not a power found innately in us, but it is found in our spiritual union with Christ. So we have here something of a summary pause. As Timothy honors this call to not be ashamed, but rather to be willing to suffer hardship for Christ, there's a connection now to what Paul says in verse 2. I don't think these two verses are completely disconnected. We're taking something of a pause here in the thought process. But at verse 2, there's a connection with verse 1. That is this. Timothy is to demonstrate this orientation of being willing to suffer for the Gospel by passing that truth of God on to others. What's the connection? If you are ashamed of the truth, you might believe it, but you're not going to talk to anyone else about it. If you are unwilling to suffer hardship for the Gospel, you will keep controversial doctrines quiet. You don't want to stir up trouble with anyone and you don't want to run into someone who teaches false doctrine because you don't want to suffer. But if you are strengthened by the grace of God to embrace the truth of God, there's a natural outflow of that. It's found in verse 2. What you have heard from Me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you have heard from Me in the presence of many witnesses. That is, Paul's teaching of God's truth has been taught to Timothy. What has Timothy learned? Specifically, chapter 1 and verse 8, it is the Gospel. Verse 9, that the God who saves us. 
and calls us to a holy calling, not because of works that we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ before the ages began and now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. What did Jesus' death accomplish? It abolished death. It brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. We have this life in Christ. This is the truth. This is the Gospel that Paul has taught to Timothy. He has embraced that message. And now he is to pass it on to others. Now, first let's stop and say that he's heard this message in the midst of witnesses. There's debate as to the meaning of who these witnesses are. Is this a one-time event? Or when was this passage of truth in the presence of witnesses When did this happen? I think in the context of the book of Acts, in the context of the pastoral epistles, it may be best to see this as Timothy seated in the audience listening to Paul teaching as they pass from city to city on the missionary journeys. In other words, Paul didn't get Timothy off and tell him a secret that he was ashamed of. He didn't hide his teaching in a corner. The teaching that he proclaimed to Timothy that Timothy learned was amongst many witnesses. Maybe in the assemblies. Maybe it was with other leaders of the church. Certainly one witness is his grandmother and another witness is his mother. Chapter 1 and verse 5. There's been many who have attested to the truth of what Paul has taught. And many who would attest to the rightness of passing on the sound doctrine that he has taught to Timothy. Let's pause and think about that for a moment. It's it's almost like Paul is handing a box to Timothy and saying, here, this is now in your possession. This truth, keep it, guard it, watch over it, pass it on. We have to be careful there in the analogy, but I think there's a sense of a sacred trust here that's handed off. One New Testament introduction says this very profoundly. Please hear. It says, there is a given about the Christian faith. It is something inherited from the very beginning of God's actions for our salvation. And it is to be passed on as long as this world lasts. Not that the Christian faith is interested in antiquity for its own sake. We don't gather here simply as historians to look back at what was. No. There is that, the writers say, about the essence of the Christian faith that is not open to negotiation. God has said and He has done certain things. And Christians must stand by those things whatever the cost. So the message that we receive is not to be adjusted. It is adapted to various cultures and various situations. It is a message that we must learn to put in the idioms of our language and adjust it to be understood according to the culture of our day. But it is never altered. That message is never changed. It is held in trust as a deposit with this church, Eden Baptist, and with all of God's people. So this Gospel truth, this pure doctrine which Timothy received as a trust from Paul, he is now to entrust to faithful men. The word entrust means to place in security with, to commit for safekeeping against false doctrine. Here is the idea. 
The gospel is a body of truth that one must know and protect against corruption. This received apostolic authoritative truth is to be entrusted then to faithful men. Faithful certainly in the sense that they're believers, but faithful more in the sense that they are reliable, that they are trustworthy. These are people who can handle this truth and are going to keep it solid. Timothy's not necessarily to look for wealthy men, not to look for intellectually gifted men, prominent men. He is to look for men who are loyal to God. Once Timothy has entrusted these men then with the truth, they will be able to teach others also. How do you read that? It's not that Timothy's going to show up and turn them into super teachers. They're going to be able to pass the truth on to others in the sense that they will be willing to stand for the truth against opposition. Men who will not neglect the true doctrine. They will not falsify it. They will not denigrate it or compromise it, neither in word or in deed. They will receive this Word and they will be able to teach others also because they trust it. They believe it. They know it. They know the God who has revealed it. Titus 1.9 I think captures the sense here. We don't want to read the book of Titus into 2 Timothy, but I think this is what Paul is saying. Titus 1.9, he says he must, that is, he's giving qualifications for pastors in the church, he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. These faithful men are not able to teach until they know the truth. And they're not able to teach until they have the backbone to stand up against false teaching and to speak the truth in love. Now we'll notice here that he is talking about men. Should we take that generically? As we put together the word men, teach faithful men, Timothy, as an apostolic delegate there in Ephesus, teach these men to teach. It's unlikely that he's referring here to men generically. I think that he's referring contextually in the pastoral epistles to those who would lead the assembly as pastors and teachers. Timothy has received instruction. The church has received instruction about the proper relationship between men and women within the assembly. So I think what he's saying here is equip spiritual leaders who will give pastoral oversight to the church, being those who know the true doctrine and proclaim the true doctrine. There are a number of them already, and Timothy needs to train others. But having said that, that I think that's the specific idea here, it is also the case that this is an environment which is to characterize the church of Jesus Christ. The local church is to be a place where the true doctrine is passed on from one generation to the other. We have a lot of churches today where the idea seems to be that we get together so we feel good. And hopefully there ought to be some good feelings as we come together, undoubtedly. But that's not our purpose. Our purpose ultimately is to pass on the faith from one generation to the next. We're to teach these men, but that teaching is to take place at every level. Now, as I said, it really is essential that that teaching takes place at the level of equipping faithful leaders in the assembly. 
Last Sunday night, I got home 10.15, 10.30 Sunday night. You go, what on earth was going on that late at church? Well, we, on a monthly basis, meet with our pastoral interns, young men that are training for ministry, and we simply talk to them about ministry. And we talk to them about the true doctrine. And we interact on those things late into the night, on these Sunday nights. I'm very thankful for Paul Perdue who makes that work, who gets it done, who makes sure that we're well fed during that long meeting. And it's a great work. Every single time I've left, I said, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go home. And then I get home and go, why didn't we leave sooner? (laughs) Why are we getting home so late? This is a work that you need to understand is happening within our assembly. It's not a club. It is a purposeful endeavor to find faithful men who can be entrusted with the true doctrine so that they can pass it on to others as they would lead churches should God desire for them to do that. But this work continues on in different areas and in different ways. Think of Titus chapter 2 and verse 4 where the older women are to teach the younger women. How many young mothers and young women in this world need someone to come around them and support them and talk to them and encourage them in the faith. Our women to women ministry, that's exactly what we're striving to do. To put women together who may not talk to each other normally in the exchange of life. We're thankful for Elaine Pratt and her work to keep that ministry going and those who are working closely with her to put women in touch. That's what we're doing. It's not simply a social connection. It's meant to create a conversation so that the faith is passed on from one generation to the next. Think of 2 Timothy 1.5. We have Lois and Eunice teaching Timothy. And I thank God for that work that goes on in our assembly as diligent moms and dads are teaching the faith to their children in bite-sized simple pieces from their youth. And then as they age, to continue to train them in the things of God. I thank God for our Sunday school teachers and our Wednesday night teachers and the group leaders that are involved in these works as they pour in time, sometimes a very difficult time, staying up late Saturday night because they didn't have time to get to that lesson like they would normally do. Those coming in on Wednesday night already tired from a day's work, but investing in the children of our church. Our Youth with a Purpose 4th through 6th grade group just got back from a trip this last week. I have two children in my home that were part of that and I'm still not done hearing stories of everything that happened on that trip. They had a blast. I mean, it was a time of their life. But why are they there? Rocky Ranch, Joanne Ranch, as they lead that and the leaders that work with them, do they, they have nothing else to do? They're looking for a vacation at a Boy Scout camp? I don't think so. Though I know Rocky enjoys the fishing. And uh, he'll look forward to that. But why are they there? Not there just to have a vacation. Not there to just have a good time. They're there to pass on the faith to those young people. And they're getting it. They're grasping these truths. This needs to be taking place on various levels with choir leaders and on and on it goes as we pass the faith on everything that we're doing as a church should feed into that purpose to say here is the true doctrine here is the faith that christ has bequeathed to us 
Let's talk about how we apply that in our culture, in our situation, in our homes, and then let's pass that trust on to the young people of our church. William Barclay has said that every believer in Christ is a link between two generations. Do you see yourself as a link between two generations? If you're a young person here today, there's just children younger than you. There's somebody to look after. There's someone to pass the faith on. You may simply be in high school right now or junior high. There's young people looking up to you. Do you see yourself as a link between two generations? To the fathers of our church on this Father's Day, do you see yourself as that link? Do you see yourself passing on the faith to your children? This is to be our orientation as a church and as families. Now, verses 1 and 2 is something of, a, of an interlude then before returning to the theme of calling Timothy to suffer in verse 3. Paul drives this point by employing three metaphors that are going to sever the taproot of Christian amateurism. We don't pass on this faith by being hobbyists of Christianity. Rather, we need, and here he returns to the call to suffer, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The orientation of Timothy's life for Christ is to reflect the undistracted focus of a soldier who endures suffering to please his enlisting officer. Someone recruited this soldier for the army. And this soldier's focus is such that he's willing to endure suffering to please that individual. Soldiers suffer deprivation, sleepless nights, difficult terrain, harsh elements, hunger, thirst, sore feet and muscles, wounds of battle and untold dangers from enemies. The faithful soldier does not, we notice here in verse 4, get entangled in civilian pursuits. When a soldier goes off to war, he leaves business behind, he leaves family behind, it's almost as if he dies. Civilian life is left in the rearview mirror. This is one who is willing to give his life for the cause of the army. With undistracted focus then, he seeks to please the one who enlisted him. Now, how do we apply that to our lives as followers of Christ? This undistracted focus of the soldier willing to endure hardship and suffering. Well, the point is not that we should ignore our families or quit our jobs or quit mowing the lawn or going out on a Friday night, that all these civilian affairs must be set aside. That's obviously not the right application. The point is that when you pick up Christ's cross, you don't turn back. It's a one-way trip. You disentangle yourself from that point from any distraction that impedes your devotion to Christ. There's a lot of distractions in this world. A lot of things that can keep us from being a genuine soldier of Christ who lives in a disentangled way with this world. I wonder as we think on this point, is it evident by the way that you live, by the way that I live, that your life is devoted to Christ? Or is Christianity a hobby? Would others look at you and say that's something that person inserts in his or her schedule when there's opportunity? 
Now remember Paul. He's a tent maker and many has been in some places. But he's not saying by any means we need to set aside our jobs, every one of us. We can't do that. But there was no question. If you knew Paul and you knew he was making tents, would you think that tent making was his life? That was his whole focus. That's all that he was about. And that he fit Christianity in on the side as a hobby. He liked to teach now and then. Now you would look at Paul and you would say there is a man who is wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. He works in order to serve Christ better. The orientation of our lives is to devote this undistracted focus of a soldier who endures suffering so that we can please the One who enlisted us, Jesus Christ. Secondly, the orientation of our lives is to reflect the devotion of an athlete who competes according to the rules. And we've got to tease this out a little bit here and the meaning of it as we think on the context. So work with me on this. But verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless... He competes according to the rules. The word competes is an important Greek word that translates a word that was used in reference to professional rather than to amateur athletes. Full-time athletes were supposed to be wholly dedicated to their sport. Individuals who could swear before that great statue of Zeus, I have trained for ten months for my sport. So when we read the phrase according to the rules, that means that this athlete's not going to cheat. And he's, he's not allowed to pull on the loincloth of the guy running in front of him. That's, as you're there in public, that's bad. You can't do that and you're out of the race. And those kinds of things happened in ancient Greece in these, in these athletic events, these Olympic events. But it's not only cheating publicly. It also, I think, speaks of cheating privately. Because competing according to the rules in ancient Greece, wasn't simply what you did on the track or in the field. It was how you prepared. And so, training according to the rules is competing according to the rules. Full-time athletes were to be full-time athletes. And so, the followers of Christ are not to be those who cut corners in their devotion to Jesus. What happened to that athlete that stood before the great statue of Zeus and swore that he had trained for ten months? If they found out that that individual was lying, he could be physically punished. And we might question, why on earth would an ancient Olympian with the glory of the crown before him cheat in his training and just show up for the games and for the glory and not do the training? Well, it was a problem. And if you've watched any mid-season professional basketball games, you'll understand the idea. you got people kind of just shuffling through the motions, wanting the glory, not wanting to put in the work. That's true of many. That's never true of the greatest athletes, though, is it? Maybe you've got a draw on music or something like that, but you look at the people who thrive in athleticism, those who are at the top of their game and their profession, they are not people known for being lazy. They're not cutting corners in private. Nor should Christians. Our lives are to be devoted to the disciplines of following Jesus Christ in public as well as in private. No corner cutting. 
The athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, what is the crowning here? Perhaps we can just go within the book itself and draw from chapter 4 and verse 8, where Paul says, "...Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing." The crown is righteousness. To stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ To know that our sins are forgiven. That we've embraced this Gospel of Jesus crucified and risen. And that life and immortality has become ours. We stand in the righteousness of Christ because we have competed well. This is the life to which Christ has called us. And thirdly, the orientation of our lives. Not only the undistracted focus of a soldier who's willing to endure suffering. Not only the devotion of an athlete who competes according to the rules. But thirdly, The orientation of our lives is to reflect a farmer who works hard and earns his share of the crops. Verse 6, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Hard-working translates a Greek word which means one working to the point of exhaustion. We're very separated from farm work. Some of us have had some experience in that in our past. Some of us hobby farmers, I guess, on some level, but... Uh, that, that's, that's something that doesn't really connect with us as much in our suburban setting. But farming is hard, hard work. It takes plotting, patient perseverance. There are no quick results. The hours are long. And how many famous soldiers do you know about? How many famous athletes could you name? How many famous farmers? Nobody recognizes the farmer. They just eat their food. They don't know the hard work that's involved, but, says Paul, by word of encouragement, they're the first to share in the crop. I think the meaning here is not so much that we should remunerate them first, though he makes that point elsewhere. But I think the point is, listen, they're out there in the field. They're the first ones to pick that fruit because they planted it. They cultivated it. And they are reaping that harvest. In other words, the farmer is the one that's in the work. He's in the field. That's the one doing the hard, hard labor in the purposes of God in this world. We as Christians are to be part of that hard labor. It's work to teach the Word of God. It's work to pass on the faith to the next generation. It is hard work to live for Christ. It's not going to happen by laziness. Think over what I say, says Paul, verse 7. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I don't think the meaning is what I've said is absolutely confusing and God will kind of tap you with a wand here somewhere and you'll get the point all of a sudden. It's not hard to know what he's talking about. Farmers work hard. Athletes can't cut corners and soldiers have to be willing to suffer hardship. I think what he's saying is as you apply these ideas to your life, God will give you insight to work out the implications. And as you apply it in choosing others who will lead the assembly because you're entrusting with them the truth of God's Word, He'll give you wisdom as to who has that kind of medal. What kind of men Timothy must choose to teach and invest his life in? And what kind of changes he needs to make in his own life to live a life of singular devotion to Christ, not as an amateur Christian, but as one whose life is devoted to Jesus. Christian life. How do we read this text any other way? It simply is not 
an affair for amateurs. Jesus never recruits hobbyists. He calls each of us to live a life devoted to His cause and that devotion should be epitomized by the spiritual leaders of the church. The elders and deacons of this church should be men who are hard-working They are leading the assembly. It doesn't mean they're doing all the work. They're to equip others to do the works of service. But they ought to be those that are at the leading edge of the hard work. The elders and deacons of the church are to be men of discipline, not those who are cutting corners and cheating on Christ behind closed doors. They're to be men of endurance and perseverance in the faith. They're to be men whose life is oriented to the cause of Christ and everyone knows it. They may indeed have a job outside of the church, but it's clear that their life is centered in Christ and that they live and work every day of their lives in devotion to Jesus. And that is to be true of every one of us as followers of Christ. I wonder in light of this text, ask the question as I ask it of myself, has your life become distracted by the things and the affairs of this world? Are you so caught up with the here and now that the exercise of your walk with God looks to outsiders like a hobby? You fit church in here and there as you have an opportunity and you contribute to the ministry occasionally as it fits into your schedule. You read the Bible and you pray devotionally Now and then, though it's really a busy life and it's hard to work that in. I wonder, maybe it's time to reorder your life so that it's oriented to the advance of Christ's cause in this world. I think there's a truth that may serve us well here as we search our hearts. Those who make a hobby out of what should be a life are probably making a life out of what should be a hobby or what should be disregarded altogether. Now we've got to hold on here because we can just all walk out of here in absolute discouragement saying, if we say, okay, I need to go back to the drawing board and reorder my schedule. I need to see if I can put in ten more minutes of Bible reading somehow. And I've tried this before, particularly those of us who are adults and live a busy life. You say, okay, how do I do a little bit more and reorder my time? There's only so much there and it's really hard to live a life devoted... No, this is not about reordering our time necessarily. Now, you may have a massive time waster in there somewhere that you just need to kill an area of life that just needs to stop and change. And that might be very helpful for you to reorder your time. But for those of us that are disciplined, living life actively, have a lot of responsibilities in life, it's, it's discouraging to go, I've got to rework my schedule here. This is not a reworking of our time. This is a reworking of our focus. We need to see everything hinged on and centered on Jesus Christ. I go to work for the glory of Christ. I raise my family for the glory of Christ. I pay taxes for the glory of Christ. 
I take care of issues and ministries in the church for the glory of Christ. I live every day of my life. I go on vacation for that matter for the glory of Christ so that I can serve Him better. It's not about me and what I can consume. It's not about what others think of me and how they bring me glory. It's about living a life of utter devotion to Christ so that everything we do in this mundane world serves His purposes, His glory, and thus brings us the ultimate joy because it's founded in Christ and not in self and not in this world. The answer, Christian, is not simply to reorder your schedule. Though that might be a project. And it's not to find some reserves in yourself to become the Christian that you're supposed to be. The answer is found in this statement. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The Jesus who saves us gives us a grace to orient our lives toward what really matters and what will matter in eternity. Are you not thankful to God that we do not have an amateur Savior? We don't have a Savior that cuts corners. We don't have a Savior that fritters away His time on trivial pursuits, who doesn't really care about us except when it fits into His agenda. We have a Savior who is wholly devoted to those that He has saved, is ever living to intercede for them. Our Savior is not some stone mute statue that we stand before and swear that we've been good boys and girls. He is the Sovereign of the universe who loves us and pours out His grace upon us in relationship with us. This grace in me makes me alive to God. It gives me love for Him. And it thus centers all of life in Christ. Whether it's job or family or playing a board game, Wherever it is, it's all about Him. It's all centered in Him. And I enjoy life in Him. He is the Savior ultimately before whom we will stand someday. And thus, it is His saving grace and His sovereign power that steers every moment of our lives. We realize that before us as Christians is the victor's crown of righteousness to someday stand forgiven before Christ and to hear before the judge of this earthly race. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's bow for prayer. Father, in the struggles of life, we can almost despair of hearing such words from You, and we know that we'll never deserve them. But I pray, dear God, that we'd find in Christ the grace to live a life that is rightly ordered. There may be some among us here who are cutting corners in private. Who are not enduring, persevering in the faith. We're giving up early. And we're cheating. God, help us to deal with those sins that are like a weight about us and keep us from running the race faithfully. Some of us perhaps are so self-oriented that all we do is drink in the truth and we never let it out. We never speak to a younger person about their walk with Christ. We don't live as an example before others. God, help us to reorient our world 
Perhaps there's even someone here today who does not know Christ as Savior, whose life is wholeheartedly centered on self, and they're miserable. God, I pray that You would fan into flame that misery. Bring them to see that their joy is located in Christ crucified and risen. Someday every one of us will stand before His throne and bow the knee. And as Your followers, we plead with You in prayer earnestly for one another with sincerity of heart. God, may we live so that we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And may it be genuinely true of us in all of the mundane work that we do in everyday living that that is what means more to us than life itself. To know that we've lived for Your glory, for the advance of Your cause, for the magnification of the splendor of Your name which we will enjoy through all eternity as those forgiven by Christ and fitted with His grace. We lay this earnest request at Your feet. In Jesus' name, Amen.